for May 7th, 2012. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 201. A smash rate of a New Yorker per second. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Overthinkers, assemble! We have a huge panel, a huge panel tonight to talk about the Avengers movie, which has taken the world by storm and will make $7 billion in its first five days of opening and has cured polio, which is... (laughs) (laughs) already cured but it cured it again that's how good this movie is i'm matt rather here is the panel panel your question this week which uh character what character that was not in the avengers movie uh would you like to see in the avengers movie sequel uh drink because peter fenzel is not first in the alphabet we are blessed tonight because we have an infrequent podcaster with us uh but we love him when he comes it's matthew belinky Thank you very much, guys. Always a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm looking at a Wikipedia page of lists of people who have been in the Avengers, which is a very long Wikipedia page. Uh, But there's a guy from the 60s known as the Swordsman, and the Swordsman's superpower is that he is very good at using a sword. He is literally just a dude who is good, and I believe it says something that, like, he has some sort of sword that can maybe, like, throw energy bolts or other forms of projectile. And what I like about him is that we already have a guy who's really good at a bow and arrow, right, and has a special bow and arrow. So I like the idea about, like, adding a bunch of guys who use modern, high-tech versions of, like, a lot of old-fashioned weapons. So I want the swordsman, then I want, like, the trebucheist, and I want, like, the blunderbuster, like, basically, like, anything that, like, you know, you can imagine the Scarlet Pimpernel using, I want in the Avengers, but, like, you know, with a really high-tech, uh, put a laser scope on that thing. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> put Do old school with the caveman, rock man. He's, like, the best at fighting with rocks in the world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, you have to find him in a location with no rocks or else you're going to lose. Like, the ocean is pretty good. Just make sure that the bottom is really far. Uh, Peter Fenzel now is next in the alphabet. Drink again just because you like what you're drinking. <laughs> well, I'm also looking at the list of all-time Avengers members, and I'm, I'm seeing that in uh, The Mighty Avengers, there's a character named Jocasta. Uh, and Jocasta, of course, is the name of Oedipus's mom <laughs> slash love interest in the Oedipus cycle. And I'll read to you Jocasta's description from her Wikipedia page. Jocasta's body is composed of titanium steel with remarkable superhuman strength, speed, stamina, and reflexes, which can withstand most physical and energy attacks. Being a non-living construct, she acquires no food, water, or oxygen to survive, and thus is also immune to poison and diseases, and can easily survive in the vacuum of space and underwater. I feel like this really captures... Uh, Sophocles' original intention in a way that Oedipus <laughs> Rex really failed to do so. <laughs> um, Jocasta apparently has also built like a brick house to an entirely inappropriate degree um, and is, is a robot. She's constructed originally by Ultron, who you may know as uh, one of the sort of less compelling Marvel villains. Uh, I mean, he's not, he's like less silly than Mysterio without being like kind of more identifiable or plausible. <laughs> so, yeah, so I would say Jocasta. Uh, oh, actually, yeah, um, 
I think it's because uh, there's like a brain transfer that pulled the wife of the creator of Ultron's brain into the body of Jocasta. So like the robot is actually making a commentary on like his own personal relationships. Um, so yeah, so I feel like if that if she were just to show up, I think uh, I think it would really co- uh, add another layer of complexity to the already complex and rich tapestry that is Avengers related gender politics. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> Excellent. Wait, so she she was married to her creator. Is, is that uh, so okay. So so Ultron is a robot, <laughs> and Ultron. Uh, uh, made her and based her brain patterns on Janet Van Dyne, aka the Wasp, who is also uh, a superhero and of her own right. And um, the Wasp was married to the person who made Ultron. So Ultron uh, made a robot to marry himself, uh, and in doing to do this, he brainwashed his own creator into implanting the life force of his dead wife into this robot. <laughs> When you put it that way, like Sophocles is a pretty good um, reference. No, yeah, I just it's just Ultron is really I think Ultron is really rubbing it in by naming the robot Jocasta, like just so <laughs> that everybody knows what he was doing. I mean, I feel like he might want to do it a little more tactfully, but yeah, he's really just like, hey guys, I'm marrying my mom as a robot. Um, <laughs> I mean, if your name is Ultron, you're not known for subtlety. I suppose. I guess that's Ultron's power, right? Is like like directness and a like, lack of subtext. Exactly, exactly. Now I gotta I gotta double check here whether he's actually a robot. He is an artificial intelligence with a robot body. His abilities vary with each redesign. So yeah, so his 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 definitely thrives in situations where he gets to say what he means and means what he says. Excellent. So uh, that's Pete Fenzel. Mark Lee next in the alphabet. Lee. Okay, I think we can all agree that the Incredible Hulk was the best part of the Avengers movie. At least he produced the most applause and cheers and laughs from the <laughs> movie audience that I was in. So I think the next Avengers movie should clearly do away with the rest of the less interesting Avengers and make it an all-Hulk team. Because according to this long list of Wikipedia, uh, this long Wikipedia article with a long list of Avengers characters, there are at least two other Hulks that have been parts of the members of the Avengers. She-Hulk and Red Hulk. Um, of which I know nothing about, but they're on the list. So I'm going to put them out there, those two. But uh, fortunately, Twitter has also given us a universe of other Hulks that we can add to it. Um, allow me to quickly recap. Feminist Hulk, Drunk Hulk, Buddhist Hulk, Cross-Dressing Hulk, Film Crit Hulk, Bartender Hulk, Lit Crit Hulk, Editor Hulk, and of course, our everyone's favorite, Grammar Hulk. <laughs> Hulks, Hulks assemble, Hulk smash. <laughs> these are the, the hulks of twitter right this is like the the twitter hulks yes yes and not all yeah. these accounts are active anymore um but uh, at least certainly some of them are and um you know if they're inactive they can certainly be brought back uh you know by cleverly retconning them through some awesome marvel continuity and putting into <laughs> a new team of all hulk avengers the all hulk Wait, avengers. so is grammar hulk is grammar hulk always smashing himself <laughs> Just like, because he like says something and immediately becomes enraged at himself. <laughs> that like his his challenge is that he's smart enough to know what good grammar is, but he's not smart enough to use it. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, talk about Sophocles. That's right there. That's Greek. Mm. Uh, Josh, <laughs> Josh McNeil next in the alphabet. 
would like to see them do uh, Black Panther in the next Avengers movie. <laughs> Mostly because I want to see the I want to see Hollywood attempt to make a good Black Panther movie um, that is both super heroic and like appropriately deals with the racial issues in America. Um, I don't feel like we've really seen that yet. You know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles two came close, but. Um, no, no, it's time for the Black Panther to uh, to perform, and I'm gonna make the stipulation right now: neither Will Smith nor um, Denzel Washington is allowed to play the Black Panther. <laughs> Did you see Steel with Shaquille O'Neal as John Henry Irons? Sadly, no. Oh, it's great. I mean, by which I mean it's not great, but it's got Richard Roundtree in it. Uh, I mean, he, it's pretty amazing. It has this wonderful scene where Shaq is inside of like a barn of some kind or like a, a, a death chamber. And there's like a small hole in the wall and somebody throws a grenade in through the hole. And Shaq has to pick up the grenade and like like free throw it back through the hole to get it out of the room. And he like makes it take it the camera before he does it because, Oh no, Shaquille O'Neal has to make free throws. And then he gets a giant <laughs> hammer and he says hammer time a couple times. So it's pretty solid. Wait, did, um, did he only have to throw the grenade back through the hole after someone like body checked themselves into his like ironclad hips and knocked him on the ground. And then someone came in and blew a whistle. No. Yeah. It was just near the end of the games. They were just making free throws just for the hell of it <laughs> so oh yeah no no i hear you i hear you. he gets fouled a lot that's true that, he gets a lot of and one situations in that movie <laughs> i'd like to read a little bit from uh the source of all knowledge wikipedia uh the black panther's name predates the october 1966 founding of the black panther uh party though not the black panther logo of the party's pre- uh, predecessor uh, nor the segregated World War II Black Panther's tank battalion. He is the first black modern superhero in mainstream comic books. Few black heroes were created before him, none with actual superpowers. These included Waku, Prince of the Bantu, who starred in his own feature in the Omnibus series, wait for it, Jungle Tales. So Black Panther uh, represents a, a giant leap forward for uh, African-American superheroes in, uh, in the Marvel or any other comics. Uh, yeah, he was something of a big deal. He was the, he was the ruler of the fictional in Marvel Universe African nation of uh, T'Challa, and which was known for being uh, one of the world's primary sources of vibranium, which is oh. the fictional metal that... Uh, among other things, is alloyed into Captain America's indestructible shield. I think Iron Man's armor probably uses a bit of it. So, yeah, he's he's a big deal. Does does Captain America use conflict vibranium? No, no, no. It's it's all it's all confl- it's all mined under the. Well, actually, you know, I mean, his yeah, doesn't his shield predate the the UN in its modern form? So there's there's no real way to to say whether it you know fits international. You know, international treaties and and processes of uh, of acquisition. So those yeah, they, they say that they say that vibranium is really rare, but it's the De Beers cartel that's keeping it. Um, you know, supply low <laughs> artificially. Right. Absolutely. You know, I do think it's interesting that like the first mainstream black superhero has to be uh, very uh, clearly identified as African and the ruler of an African nation. Because I remember that originally, and I suppose it's still true that uh, Storm. Who who is a, a black superhero from the '60s is also uh, African, and not just you know somebody just a regular old U.S. citizen who happens to be black. They're also both African princes. Yeah, so we've we like, yet to we have yet to see the storm-based uh, you know phishing email chain. 
Oh, jeez. <laughs> Wait, what what happens when a toad? What happens when a toad says one hundred dollars to Nigeria? <laughs> Same thing as everything else. Uh, I heard the uh, dulcet tones of John Parrish before. What up? What up? What up? So while we're talking about you know uh, representation of different. Uh, different racial groups within the Avengers. I would like to see Captain Marvel on the Avengers next time around. Not the Captain Marvel who was a member of the the Kree race and you know flew around and had energy blasts from his gauntlets. Not the Captain Marvel who uh, who's also known or who is also known as uh, Marvel Man and is the subject of a a long uh, long standing trademark uh, issue dispute between. Uh, Todd McFarlane and Neil Gaiman over the over the rights that were originally in the Alan Moore character created in the 1980s. Now I'm talking about Captain Marvel, aka Monica Rambeau, one-time leader of the Avengers, and I'll tell you why. I I was only tenuously familiar with her for a while, but I became a big fan of her as well as a bunch of other minor characters in Warren Ellis's Next Wave series. For those of you who've read it, which is uh, is is anyone else familiar with it? Next Wave. Warren Ellis, Marvel. Okay, so Warren Ellis got you know got his own like six month series or sorry twelve issue series where he got free reign to play with a number of really minor Marvel characters like Monica Rambeau in this case, like uh, Tabitha Smith who used to be Boom Boom on the X Force, uh, the Machine Man, uh, Elsa Bloodstone, and a couple of other a couple of other characters like that and they go around fighting a bunch of other minor villains from the marvel history including fin fang foom uh, the mindless ones who used to be these demonic foes of doctor strange and it's it's really hysterical because i mean among other things uh, captain marvel in this series uh, can't stop bringing up how how you know when she used to be in charge of the avengers which was apparently for like 15 minutes back in the 70s you know she would have done this in this situation and everyone else sort of rolls their eyes behind her back uh, but she can turn into energy and she's awesome excellent the, the other sorry one last thing the other awesome thing about uh the next wave series is that Warren Ellis originally wanted to use uh, Nick Fury, who's in the Avengers movie, as a character, but as a sort of deranged, drug-addled, seventy-year-old psychopath. And Marvel, for obvious reasons, didn't give him permission to do that, so he created a very obvious uh, Nick Fury one-off called Captain Dirk Anger, <laughs> <coughs> the uh, the leader of the leader of Hate, the highest <laughs> anti-terrorism effort. <laughs> Didn't and, he? Uh, didn't he use that idea again in um, Stormwatch? Uh, well, no, Stormwatch predates this by 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 many many years. Next Wave was actually back in two thousand seven ish or so. Uh, but yes, Dirk, Dirk Anger is known for uh, chewing chewing sticks of dried lizard flesh and uh, insists on being fed a live animal every day, which he beats in hand to hand combat, tears off the parts he wants, and has cooked. With his uh, with his team, then burying the rest of the animal in New Jersey. Why? Why in New Jersey? Yeah, it could only happen yeah. in New Jersey, right? Why, why in New Jersey? For hate. <laughs> so, like wherever he is, they need to transport it to New Jersey. What if he's in like the what is it? What if he's in like the Secret Wars? And he's like in another dimension. Do they have to like open up a portal or something to get it out there? I, I, I don't. I don't think you're understanding fully how ridiculous the uh, 
the, the next wave series was. I mean, H- Hate's base of operations is the Aero Marine, which instead of being the helicarrier, which is a flying aircraft carrier, it's a flying submarine, which is just several, <laughs> submarines, several submarines bolted together with rocket exhausts pointed out the back. Well, that's good. So they fly, so they don't have to take the Lincoln Tunnel to get in New Jersey. Yeah. The pool's terrible. <laughs> Yeah, that could be really time-consuming. If the they turnpike, forget the, the turnpike, <laughs> especially at rush hour. Yeah, we we all once spent uh, you know hours sitting on the the GW bridge trying to get to New Jersey to bury our dead animal parts. Yes, <laughs> that happened. For hate, <laughs> uh, I um I would like to add the character. Well, here, here's what I'd like to do. I in reading this uh, Wikipedia list of Avenger members uh, that was circulated because I, I I really my familiarity with Marvel comics is entirely limited pretty much to the to the film adaptations. Um, the and I you know hang my head in shame as an overthinker, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I um I discovered that there are uh West Coast Avengers in addition to uh regular Avengers and that there was a West Coast uh Avenger in um in the 80s there was a series of West Coast Avengers uh books. So um I you know page through the list of West Coast Avengers and I think I would like uh Mockingbird uh aka Barbara Morse uh but I, I am not satisfied with this, with using a, uh, an actual Avenger in the Avengers. So I, I would actually like to change Mockingbird to uh, Mockingjay and have a Hunger Games <laughs> Avengers crossover uh, event in the, you know, bringing the two great box office successes of uh, 2012 so far um, together into an unstoppable juggernaut in uh, 2015 the, with, uh, you know, Jennifer Lawrence playing Katniss Everdeen, uh, whose superpower is that she shoots the bow really well. Um, sort of like uh, Hawkeye or the Swordsman, I guess, right? Like, well, you, uh, you, you joke, but in the comics, Mockingbird, I believe, was a love interest for Hawkeye. Uh, I see a, so little, uh, a little Jennifer Lawrence, Jeremy Renner, uh, you know, romance action with Scarlett Johansson as Black Widow feeling, uh, feeling jealous off in the corner, or at least kind of being deeply conflicted. And, you're, or, or and the, you joke, but the unstoppable juggernaut is an actual character in the Mars. So if you want to create an unstoppable dog or not, that's always an option. <laughs> uh, that's a pity it doesn't work at the um, the box office. So that... Uh that is the panel. Uh, six people tonight. Huge uh, for the Overthinking It podcast. And we're going to get to the Avengers in just a second. But uh, first off, we had a couple of events, uh, a couple of live events, in-person events, since the, um, the Overthinking It live show last week. And there are three that I want, that I want to uh, talk about. The first off is Overthinking It movie night in Boston. Pete Fenzel, you were there. You were sort of hosting. Uh, uh, how was Overthinking It movie night? Oh, it was so much fun. We had a great time. If you came by the Lowe's uh, Harvard Square, we picked a little out-of-the-way theater that had a, two day, a 2D showing at a time that worked for everybody here. Uh, we put up a sign on the wall. Uh, at one point, it was uh, hung over the face of a mural of Charlie Chaplin, and we took a couple pictures with Otis on it and our hashtag of OTI Movie Night, and we, we, we saw the movie together, uh, you know, she 
Lee was there, Cognac was there, a couple other friends of ours who have also commented on articles, uh, including the Geek Week producer, uh, Kevin Harrington, and also my friend Ben uh, Snitty, uh, who's commented on some of a lot of ours. We're both there. We had a blast watching the the movie in a packed house we went to clover afterwards which is kind of a vegetarian sandwich place uh, it's a little bit artis- artisanal as matt would say and uh, but yeah we had a great time it was mostly people who knew us we didn't get a ton of people who were uh you know off the internet cold to come see but we also gave people very short notice but even just having that as a thing uh just made it feel really special and gave us an extra bit of energy so um we also spent a lot of time coming up with uh hulked versions of Mark Ruffalo romantic comedies. So if you ever want to listen to 13 going on angry or the kids are all infuriated, uh, you can make sure you keep track of the OTI movie night Twitter feeds and various hashtags. I'm hoping we get to do it in more cities, that we spread it out, do it around the country, do it around the world. Uh, something we all share together because big tent polls are about the experience and about making it feel special. And that definitely felt special to share that experience with folks. Yep. And uh, so following on from that, we did a virtual uh, OTI movie afternoon, uh, evening, or middle of the night, depending on where in the world uh, you are, in the Overthinking It uh, Stickam group chat room, um, which until the stick, the usual cast of characters from Stickam showed up, uh, was it a very high-minded... Uh, was a very high-minded uh, chat and was very interesting to meet overthinkers, uh, a dozen and more from all over the world. Uh, many, many, many from uh, England to Brazil to Texas to Ohio to California to uh, Boston to New York. We were uh, all over the map and all over the internet. And we had a uh, an interesting when we weren't uh, you know trying to get our USB cameras to work and we when we weren't sort of combating um, you know uh, chat room. Lag or video chat lag or uh, combating um, the uh, the you know forchanic discourse that usually characterizes Stickam. Uh, we were uh, having a great conversation about uh, the Avengers, so we'll probably do uh, that again as well whenever we do a live. Uh, whenever we do, well, maybe not whenever, but uh, sometimes in conjunction uh, with a live meetup. So the next, the next film, the next summer tentpole that we are expecting to have uh, live events surrounding is Battleship. So get ready. Uh, get, <laughs> Take know. a big step up. You think you understand quality and excitement adventure. <laughs> It's been uh, out for weeks in Europe, and no one's even mentioned it. <laughs> it's the event of the season. Guys, 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 guys. B4. <laughs> Miss. Hit. Oh, that's crap. <laughs> uh, that, that's you see, that's the chat room. Line. Bingo. <laughs> um, so, uh, <laughs> Battleship is the next one. So, so no one can say it was last minute or that you weren't warned. You have a few weeks to prepare for overthinking at events, and then we would be remiss. Um, if we didn't mention one more live event or living event or new life uh, event for the Overthinking It crew, uh, it turns out Dave Schechner, the day after uh, recording a live in-person podcast, uh, went and made himself a father. So Schechner's son was born uh, this week. Uh, Dave Schechner is now a daddy. Dr. Schechner, we salute you uh, and um, are proud of you and, and love you and your new child and your wife and hope everything is, uh, is wonderful. Uh, we hope your baby child writes an amazing article and baby overthinking it that will be posted to babyslash.net in the near future. 
Ba- yeah, baby thinking it. Yeah, da- the two articles Dave has written for overthinking it have both ended up on uh, on the front page of Slashdot and both taken down, overthinkingit.com. Uh, all right, so um, first, to, to put us in... Um, to put us in context a little bit, uh, the Avengers movie is phenomenally successful and has busted through a bunch of uh, a bunch of records. Uh, and John, can I, I, think can I read off some numbers? Yeah, can I read off some numbers? Uh, uh, give us the highlights. Live, uh, live over the teletype as we speak, Avengers has grossed. Exactly. Avengers has grossed $200 million in three days, which makes the fastest film to reach $200 million and the biggest domestic opening weekend of all time. It's the, it's the biggest superhero movie debut, obviously. It's, it's past the domestic totals for Captain America and Thor, obviously. Uh, biggest opening in several other countries, including Mexico, Brazil, Ecuador, Peru, Malaysia, and the Philippines. And also... A uh, Rotten Tomatoes uh, tally of 94% positive reviews overall. And initial audience demographics, 50% over 25, 50% under 25. So that's a pretty even split on that half of the quadrant. 60% male, 40% female. So that is that is as, as good of a split in the four quadrants, I guess, that you you could hope to get. Yeah, it's a four it's a four quadrant movie, and uh, has a cinema score of A plus, which is the after movie surveying. So people walk out of this movie rating it an A plus. I believe that they walk out. They walk out. People walk out of this movie extremely jazzed. Why are they walking out of the movie? I mean, if they like it so much, shouldn't they stay? <laughs> And he had to catch the swarm scene. The after the after credits after credits scene is uh, there's yeah there's also a fifty percent surge in the sale of lamb shawarma right like throughout the United States people like rush to consume. They didn't really appear to enjoy the shawarma. Nobody was talking about it, right? And the shawarma restaurant was um, you know in ruins, and the the two employees on I think there were two on view were just sweeping up, right? Yeah, I mean, they were pretty tired. I think the analogy was that, like, uh, fighting an interstell- intergalactic transdimensional invasion is a lot like a long night at, like, uh, at, like Webster Hall. And then you, like, have to, like, hobble out exhausted. Kind of. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Right, exactly. It had this sort of, like, you know, we're, we're hitting the diner at dawn to, and then, you know, we'll, we'll regroup and we'll do it all again. Well, I think, I mean, as, as you all know, Robert Downey Jr. and Joss Whedon were founding members of the Greek Rescue Committee. So this was largely an attempt to salvage the Greek economy. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. The, uh, so, um, I, they, I thought Thor liked the shawarma. Thor looked like he was liking the shawarma, but we won't have to go into this in too much detail. We have a lot of stuff that we want to cover, so I'm not going to hammer this point too hard. So it it's seems, he uh, looked like mean, he was- they, they were tired because they had, they have saved Manhattan from total destruction, uh, you know, and Manhattan yes. only received partial destruction. So, um, yeah. so right. What, what is with this, uh, Mark, what do you think of this, um, Sort of destruction of Manhattan. It seems like we can't have a, a, a you know big tentpole movie these days without a, a major metropolis being you know all but leveled. Is this a, just a, a the new normal in a post nine eleven world, or uh, is there a kind of arms race of blowing up cities uh, in our tentpole movies? Well, I think later on we'll get to this whole point about like uh, you know the, the S the upping the constant upping of the ante of 
uh, violence and destruction and the sort of destructo porn in movies. We'll talk about that later. Um, I do want to sort of talk about um, this, uh, a couple of things. One, this, the sort of post 9-11 uh, destruction of Manhattan, as well as the uh, spoiler alert. Well, no spoilers. Uh, all spoilers for this podcast. We, we assume you've seen this movie. Um, at the end, the, the, the shadowy council's call to nuke Manhattan uh, to save the rest of the world. So first the whole, the, the, the post 9-11 aspect of it. Um, so, uh, well, first of all, I should put out there, the New Yorkers are divided into two categories, really. Um, those who have been in New York in 9-11 and those who were not. Um, I fall into the latter category. I was not here during that day. Obviously, you know, lived through it, witnessed it and everything. Um, I, 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 there was this one moment. I'm not going to say, come out and say, like, oh, you know, it's too soon or it's somehow... Uh, trivializes the tremendous destruction and real violence. The, the memorial that day. wall. Is um, it the memorial wall? Well, there was a memorial no, wall in the uh, in the. No, movie. it was it was the the wall where they had uh, pictures of missing people up. I, did there they was, have that? There was a shot at the end. That, sorry, I didn't mean, I didn't mean to sort of like cut off your monologue, but there was a shot that I definitely had that reaction to, where there was a it was a, a pan of various news feeds sort of after the events, mm-hmm. and there was like one of these walls where people had put up a missing uh, person posters. You know, have you seen this person? Oh, I and that. that was definitely like a very common uh, sight after nine eleven. I think it was sort of a. Yeah, it was in the TV. Yeah. It was in the sort of uh, not montage, but it was in the the shot of a lot of TV screens. Uh, the the thing we all got distracted by Stanley's cameo during that scene. Right. So, so you but, know, most actors get better over time, <laughs> but his cameos are increasingly off putting. <laughs> so let me just wrap just up my thought here. That's there with the Stanley thing. Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay, let, let me wrap my thought around this. So the scene that did get me though, for and this is um, this may be just me. Um, there is a scene of a street artist of some sort, a street vendor selling Avengers-related uh, art, right? I mean, one of them was a a sort of like a Obama, Shepard Fairey Obama-style Captain America poster. Um, but then, then there's all the other heroes of sorts, you know, sort of, uh, uh, sort of celebrating the day. But then I stepped back and thought, whoa, wait a minute. This reminds me of that the horrible, crass commercialism you saw downtown in lower Manhattan uh, after 9-11, where tourist, uh, where tourist vendors, not, the, not that the vendors themselves were tourists, but vendors catering to tourists, set up shop very close to Ground Zero and were selling horrible, tawdry 9-11-related sorts of things. Um, and I don't know if, you know, Joss Whedon's a pretty savvy guy, so I don't know if that was a little bit sort of a dig uh, at himself and the, like, the... the <laughs> insane marketing machine of marvel movies that uh were partially dependent on a depiction of major loss of life uh that that scene for some reason really struck me and i, I want to put that out there to the panel and see if that anybody else reacted to it and what it might mean so it struck me as or that whole that whole montage of news footage reacting to the attack on manhattan and the avengers presence and civilians reacting to it struck me as less of an endorsement or, you know, a necessarily a positive or negative thing. Because in that whole sequence, there are several positive and negative aspects. There are people, you know, grateful for having been saved. And there's also, we see footage of, uh, we see footage of some government officials, senators or something, you know, asking where are the Avengers now? You know, why can't we get a hold of them? You know, setting up possibly some sort of civil war storyline for future installments. I'm not sure. But in it, in any case, so there you're you're taking some good with some bad. So I don't think it's meant to be, <clears throat> I don't think it's meant to be either an, necessarily an endorsement or a you know or necessarily a condemnation. I I read it as just 
indicative of the general, spontaneous, sometimes positive, often weird energy that surrounds any big event like that. And so compare that against those shots of people going to barber shops to get the stark, you know, hair haircut or, or beard cut style. People having their, you know, people having their beard shaved like like Tony does in his weird style. It's just it's just that whole sort of general weirdness. Well, I think it also has to do with dif- like differentiating the Avengers from the other big comic book movies of late, where you've got Batman, who's sort of, you know, the whole end of that the second movie was about how he's sort of seen as a villain and not trusted and certainly not celebrated. Spider Man's the same way. The X Men are the same way. But like the Avengers are popular. And they needed to show that somehow. And I thought that was actually a pretty quick and effective way of doing that. And sort of. And just, very, I mean, it's very contemporary, too, because their popularity is mediated through huh, mediated is mediated is through through media. Right. Like they're they're popular because they're on television, because they're on the news, because, you know, man on the street interviews. Uh, mention them, and uh, you know, in that, I mean, what is that? A dig at government, yeah, what, sort of what? Inef- inefficiency, or something like that. The you know, Congress wants to hold hearings when, of course, we all know that what what happened doesn't require hearings uh, because it was awesome. Oh, I thought they were making fun of Bloomberg, but was that guy from Congress? Oh, I thought so. I thought I he was it. like a he was a senator. It, it said he was a senator. Uh. Uh. Well, then I, I think there was also some some media talking head commenting on it as well. So, Mark, when you were when you were talking about the September 11th references in the movie, I thought you were going to reference during the final or during the you know 40 minute long uh, space alien fight. There were more that, there was more than one shot of paramedics or firefighters or first responders of some sort running towards the scene of chaos in slow motion with, you know, this, this dramatic music swelling behind them. Yeah. And it was a disaster movie. Yeah. But I mean, that's, that's also very clearly evocative of the, of the September 11th mythos, you know, celebrating the, the fire department of New York and the, the paramedics who, you know, were running towards the scene of chaos while other people were running away. Mm Mm-hmm. And that, that I think that I think you could that I think you might feel a little more. Well, I mean, I, I'm not going to tell you what you should feel being a being a New York resident, but that I felt a little cheaper about because that seems like a very that seems a little more of a deliberate cash in on a real world heroic uh, mythology. Yeah, I would agree. With you. Pete, yes, I think he has something to say. Go ahead. Um. Sure, I'm glad. I'm uh, sorry that I, I haven't been able to um, stomp too much or what have you. Uh, so, so for me, two big themes in the Avengers that are, are kind of battling against each other throughout the movie are the idea of conviction, right, which is mentioned, and then the idea kind of of uh, trauma, right. So, like people are are traumatized by things, but they also have these like strong convictions of things they want to do, and the kind of outgrowth of the movie and the way the movie progresses is like behavioral modeling. Like, what do we model our behavior on? And how does the behavior of one person affect the behavior of another person? And is behavioral modeling capable of like overcoming like our past traumas, right? Or our better natures and trying to act the way that we want to act? Are they capable of overcoming the losses and the pains that we've experienced in our lives? And we see this all across the movie. So I think since the movie is so much about trying to kind of live up to an either an idea of yourself or an idea put forward by other people of conviction and kind of resilience uh, and personal strength, then it makes sense that the end of the movie shows this effect kind of echoing through um, 
echoing through the civil, the society, right? Like, like are the, the people who have just experienced this whole thing have experienced both these things. They've experienced a trauma in the form of this attack, not necessarily on Manhattan. Like, let's be very specific on Fifth Avenue, on like the wealthiest part of Manhattan uh, has been devastated by this thing. Stark Tower, like all these places of great luxury have been laid low. Um, Stark and Tower, which occupies the place where like the MetLife building is, right? I think so. I think yeah, it's exactly. exactly that spot. Which I don't know if this is a coincidence, but that's the Independence Day spot, guys. That's where the spaceship shoots the ray gun to. No, 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 no. In Independence Day, the spaceship blows up the Empire State Building in New York City. No, no, no. It absolutely does not. I'm almost positive because the. the, the, no. the okay, wait, wait. I'm, I'm googling this. If I'm wrong, but I remember. <laughs> we should. We should come back to. At some point, we should come back to the similarities between Independence Day and the Avengers. Um, but there we, are many. Of you them. should wrap up your point. I mean, Ryan did describe the Avengers as, uh, or maybe I did, and Ryan tweeted it, I forget, as uh, an Independence Day solution to a Warhammer 40K problem. But we won't go into that right now. <laughs> um, but, but the main point is that, like, you know, this isn't a movie that is going to be all Spider-Man-ish and be like, you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. But it's also not going to be all Dark Knight-ish and be like, everyone in this city is a dystopian and only interested in themselves, so I'll save them despite their horrible nature. You know, like, it's neither Pollyannish nor, like, kind of cruelly asympathetic. It shows the complexity that people have in their relationships with trauma and the way that they try to cope with trauma and the way that they deal with symbolism and heroism. So I think that all makes sense. It also kind of sets up a little bit of energy for the sequel, but I really hope that the sequel isn't like another kind of like, oh no, the superheroes are being persecuted, you know, like Days of Future Past for the bazillionth time, right? Which just yeah. gets so tiresome. But yeah, uh, well, actually, for that matter. I don't think you're going that way because this, this movie really starred the human beings, right? Um, one of the things that was most impressive to me was that at the end of this, I cared about Hawkeye and Black Widow, which was certainly not true at the beginning of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but like they're sort of they're the eyes through which we're viewing these sort of mythic figures, and so I think the, using the um, the emergency personnel, and several of them actually have speaking lines, which is is pretty rare in something like this, and sort of tying that together and sort of I got the. It was, it was less Avengers Assemble and was called like Everybody Assemble. Um, <laughs> not, not, so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, I think it actually was sort of the Spider Man, you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us without, you know, hitting the nail quite so directly on the head. Humanity Assemble. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, can we, can was... we talk about the other uh, point that I was, uh, we were, that, that comes out of this larger discussion of the destruction of Manhattan? which is the world leaders, the shadowy council's uh, lame attempt at solving the problem, which is just nuke it. Yeah, I got it. That happens a lot, right, in movies where it's like, oh, we're going to blow this place up if you guys don't solve the problem, and now you have to you have to solve the problem. I'm trying to remember what either movies or video games I've heard of that happen before. Oh, I'd like to point out one right off the top, uh, a little film you may have seen called The Rock. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, We're going to blow up Alcatraz in order to save it. I mean, it's not a major metropolis, I guess, but, uh, you know. And Armageddon to some extent, right? They want to set off the nuke remotely instead of letting them drill and and put the nuke in the ground where they were going. So there's always, like, we don't trust the team to get the job done. We're just going to nuke it regardless of whether or not we think that'll solve the problem. Right, 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 right. I'm sure it shows up in various, like, later Godzilla sequels or whatnot, where it's like, oh, we're just going to destroy the whole area um, if they can't beat Mecha Godzilla or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess uh, fights in Manhattan are interesting because I feel like in superhero worlds, they tend to think that more places like Manhattan exist than really do. 
right? Like that there's a whole bunch of different kinds of large skyscrapers and that you can just keep knocking people into them and there's going to continue to be fresh skyscrapers. And not in fact that building skyscrapers is expensive and time-consuming and doesn't really happen all that often. Um, you know what I mean? Like, relative uh, it's, yeah, it's, relative it's, to all the building, all the residential and commercial building that's done in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or even – yeah, exactly. But also as somebody who grew up in New Jersey um, and who lived in New York and experienced New York both as a sort of you know neighborhood by neighborhood on the streets experience and also experienced it as like a place that you could see from like a sandstone wall on the top of a hill inside of my town, like this was a movie that treated New York more with that sort of monolithic externalization, right, where it's like New York is the place as understood by people outside of New York and it's sort of like infinite – canyons of steel and you know infinite number of skyscrapers things can get just destroyed and there'll be more you know like they definitely didn't seem that the nuke was going to create a great loss right it was almost like new york is a font of destruction that just keeps on giving um (laughs) almost like they knew there were going to be more movies and therefore new york was going to be okay because it has to be destroyed in the next one um so i don't know there are a couple of reasons a couple of reasons for that like one is just new york is recognizable you know, like Philly's got a number of skyscrapers, but how many of you know what the Liberty Tower looks like or would recognize it on a on film? You know, but the Empire State Building, you blow that up and it's it's visceral. We have a reaction to it. Like the whole world knows what that building looks like. And really, there's very other very few other places like that. Um, even L.A. to some extent. I mean, we the only way you recognize L.A. is when you see the Hollywood sign in yeah, the background. You don't, you don't know what the, the downtown Los Angeles skyline. I mean, I live here. I don't know what the downtown Los Angeles skyline looks like. Yeah. I mean, we all can recognize San Francisco because it has that pointy building. But uh, And the know. bridge. And the bridge. Don't forget that bridge with right. the thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's always the Golden Gate Bridge off to the side. Which is, which is why San Francisco is probably the second most blown up city in film. Right? Of this, yeah. Welcome to the rock. <laughs> so well, yeah, I, I mean, like you could go to Milwaukee, but the buildings are really far apart in Milwaukee. So they that like you'd have to punch somebody really hard to get them to fly like through the like large stretch right, of that, parking lots. That's, that's when when, when you start in Milwaukee, you get a movie like Young Adult. You know what I mean? When when or I guess that's, uh, <laughs> Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, never mind. Sorry. Does so Young I, Adult I, like turn I'd into like to, a mutant robot? Oh, go ahead. I like to, I'd like to I'd like to talk specifically about the the idea of the nuclear response. So this shadowy council says, "Hey, Nick Fury." If you can't lock down this alien portal that's shooting out an infinite number of aliens, <laughs> we're going to nuke Manhattan. And Nick Fury's all like, no, no, you can't nuke Manhattan. I'm just going to unleash this immortal, indestructible green monster powered by rage that no conventional means can kill. And that's going to be better for Manhattan than, you know, nuking it. So that, <laughs> but are you saying he's wrong? <laughs> like even at a smash rate of a New Yorker per second, it takes a long time for the Hulk to do that kind of damage. Well, uh, I, I'm 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 not I'm not I'm not really I'm not really saying he's wrong. But it, on the on the wider level, it does say something about our our perceptions of power and destructive force, and that we we live in 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 Avengers world in the in the Marvel Comics universe. We live in a world where. There's, you know, the immortal or there's the indestructible green monster powered by rage that can smash skyscrapers. There's the guy in the battle suit powered by an unequaled form of energy who can also interface with just about any computer on the planet. There's the god of thunder 
and and of course there's the bow guy and whatnot. But you know, the, between those three, that's that's a pretty significant level of destructive force. And yet somehow, and and yet on the on another scale, we have a nuclear bomb, which is which is somehow seen as worse. And is a nuclear bomb necessarily worse than those three? I mean, it would take those it would take those three longer to you know destroy Hiroshima and Nagasaki than you know just dropping Fat Man and Little Boy would. But if they wanted to, could anyone really stop them? Just want to brief interlude here. Uh, at a rate of one New Yorker smashed per second, it would take the Incredible Hulk uh, about ninety three days to smash all eight million New Yorkers. Thought we should know that. I mean, ninety three days, huh? That's like a fiscal quarter. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I th- well, it's also interesting because earlier in the Avengers movie, they talk about how the human beings don't have weapons that are strong enough to combat threats on the order of the threats that they're facing in this movie. So they specifically want to use, like, the Tesseract slash Cosmic Cube's power to make stronger nukes, basically, right? Like, they want to put it in missiles and stuff. So why are they so confident that their nuke is even going to work? Um, and all it's going to do is irradiate the area. I mean, I guess it's better to be punched than irradiated would be the conventional wisdom. But then again, like, as we've seen from the NFL recently, like, being punched severely can actually cause a great diminishment in the quality of life comparable to nuclear fallout. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it it also, it also raises, and maybe, maybe later movies will, maybe later movies will explore this, but it, it raises the question of the balance of power. And, you know, we have, there was a brief time where the United States was the only country in the world with nuclear weapons. And that lasted for, I think less than five years. And then Soviet Russia got their hands on nuclear weapons as well. So there was, and then that really defined the the Cold War. Everyone sort of scuttling about in the shadow of the two countries in the world at the time that had nuclear weapons. And there was this immense imbalance of power. And at the end of the movie, you know, Nick Fury makes very clear that the Avengers, who I think I'm going to make the argument as a cohesive unit, are equivalent to a nuclear are equivalent to a nuclear arsenal. They are they they give up a an institution nuclear capability in in their person, except I guess smarter than nuclear capability because they can target, you know, specific tactical areas much more precisely than just a, a 90 kiloton nuke could. Well, yeah, it's it's sort of a, they're like a special forces unit, right, which is how the military is moving these days is to less sort of big, broad things and, and more small tactical teams. Yeah, but because like, they, they can because they can go fight in New York without irradiating everyone in New York. Which yeah, is, I, mean, I think preferable. I, I'd say even less special forces, more like special forces plus artillery. Given the given the level of of smash. damage they can do, given the level of smash, yeah, yes. it's well. Yes. I mean, like right, like when the Avengers first emerged in oh god, when was Avengers? You know, number one, nineteen sixty three, right? You have you have America sort of coping with its its place in in the world and sort of the the proper use of power, which you know is one of the the themes. And I think you know, I, I, I think it's possible to make too much of this very easily. But like one reason that we are ready for another um, Avengers movie now is because we're we're at kind of another crisis point. Uh, you know, in in terms of America's role as a superpower in the world, you know what I mean? Very different, very different from the one uh, sort of the Cold War one. Uh, right that we experience, but sort of no less, uh, you know, no less real in its own way for that. Right. 
Yeah, and the interesting point at the end of the movie is, you know, we have the shadowy council who initially doesn't trust the Avengers and wants to just nuke Manhattan. And also seems to be kind of multinational, a multinational shadowy council. Right. And then at the end of the movie, the shadowy council is like, okay, forget nukes. We've got the Avengers now, right? Forget our nuclear strategy. And And Nick Fury says, actually, I told the Avengers to take a hike. So they're sort of out of our hands. So it's the equivalent of... You know, Oppenheimer, you know, coordinating the team that builds the atomic bomb, setting it off over Hiroshima and Nagasaki and then saying, oh, yeah, by the way, I uh, I lost the plans somewhere. Uh, sorry, Eisenhower. Uh, if we need a nuke again, I'm sure we can put it back together. Yeah, I'm sure we but, can get everyone back to Los Alamos. <laughs> right. But in the meantime, just chill. Two questions about that. That, that council seems to be more of like a, an advisory board. Than actually his boss, right? Because they they tell him to do the nuke. He goes outside, blows up what he thinks is the plane with the nuke on it, and then can you know then then disbands the Avengers after that. Like Nick Fury was fired if those guys actually have any power. No, they did fire him. If you remember, there was a sequence where uh, like all the computers on board the ship said that Nick Fury is no longer in command. Right. You know, but he somehow gets his job back. Like, how does after that he continues to be in command? Because it because it happened to work out the Avenger well, thing. Well, no, well, just to, it's because oh, he did. It's because he didn't give an interview to Rolling Stone magazine, bad mouthing the Shadowy Council. And they're like, "Well, okay." <laughs> I mean, I would also like to point out that the Shadowy Council is fronted by President Daniels from Twenty Four, and as such, like wronging the Shadowy Council in like horrible, horrible ways, but then getting your job back because you're the only one to do the job is something that has been done many times over with regards to this particular <laughs> Shadowy Council by. Mr. Mr. Jack Bauer, who is sort of the let me, short. Let me ask a um, general question about the Shadowy Council. What does this movie think about authority? Because if you think about it, it's like, okay, there's this agency shield that pulls the Avengers together that empowers them to do their job. But it's like, we like the fact that Nick Fury is not really accountable, is not going to listen to his bosses, is going to go with his gut. And the Avengers themselves don't really listen to Nick Fury that much. So it's sort of like. It, it it has this sort of mix. We like the idea of this sort of like giant helicarrier hanging over us, keeping an eye on things. But we also like the idea that like when push comes to shove, like the heroes are going to take things into their own hands and go with their guts. Well, first of all, I don't like the giant helicarrier hanging over me because in this movie and probably everything, it might not be hanging over you forever. It starts crashing, right? <laughs> What's Nick Fury say? He's like, "Get us over water." You weren't over water. <laughs> really? <laughs> Hey, you know what Chekhov says? If you put a giant stealth flying aircraft carrier in the movie, it has to crash by the third act. <laughs> oh, man. Is it, well, on, on the Matt's authority point, like at one point, Tony Stark hacks into S.H.I.E.L.D. So you've got a billionaire defense contractor who now has access to all of the government's secret information, which I'm not really okay with. And then also at one point, like offhand comment, they say that like any camera, fo- like any phone with a camera on it, they can look through. Yeah, it's the Dark Knight machine. Yeah, it is the Dark Knight machine. But in this time, they're not commented on at all. There's no Lucius Fox going, "Hey, maybe yeah. we shouldn't." Nobody's like, "Oh my God, you're spying on everybody in the world simultaneously." <laughs> there is and a really fun- cool moment. Oh, go ahead, John. Well, you might be about to talk about it as well, but there is the. There's the very explicit moment where Captain America is trying to help evacuate part of New York City, and he's talking to the cops, and one of the cops says, hey, why should we listen, literally, almost literally, why should we listen to you? What sort of authority do you have? And Captain America's response is to punch nine aliens in the face. 
Well, that's an interesting moment, right? Because and I was actually going to bring up Captain America, but a different Captain America scene. But let's talk about this one for a second, because I don't think that that scene is saying that the cops should listen to him necessarily because of his ability to beat up the aliens. Uh, it seems to me that what that scene says is that they should listen to him because he has their interests in mind, because he's actually protecting them from the aliens. One of the cool things about that scene is that he manages to, like, sort of shield the cops from the onslaught of all these people coming from all these different directions, right? And it's sort of like, you know, so it's a question. You could read the scene either way. You should listen to me because I'm a badass or versus you should listen to me because I am protecting you. Like I am demonstrating. Well, right. It's, it's that it's, it's both things. I mean, is it one or the other? The answer is yes. It, right. Like, um, it's, it links authority to credibility, uh, yeah. you know, in a way and sort of credibility and, and kind of credulousness, like belief is the, the, the trade that the movie kind of highlights of Captain America. You know what I mean? Like believe, believing in something, believing in America, believing in teamwork, believing in essential goodness and, and things like this. And it's, it's sort of, they get a little, they get a little demonstration of that. And so, you know, uh, he earns, he earns authority through his credibility. But he loses the credibility immediately thereafter when he tells them to establish a perimeter on 38th Street because the aliens can fly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but can they get through Midtown? Jeez. The other Captain America scene. Where they are, though, you know? (laughs) It's a wild. Um, But the other Captain America scene I was thinking is there is kind of a throwaway scene where they're appealing to Captain America to, like, to, to like get involved and they make kind of an offhand remark about how like well i know that the place has changed a lot and it isn't exactly what you want anymore and except forget exactly what they say but he seems to strongly imply that american culture has decayed to such a degree that he kind of doesn't back it anymore you know like like the you guys remember this moment where no, he's I like thought uh, more, i thought it was more like the rise of cynicism or the kind of the uh absence of clear enemies in a kind of in a world of stateless terrorism and and stuff like that you know I mean, I saw it more broadly uh, about that, too, but also about all of the other cultural resonances that idea has across, like, the kind of baseness of the culture and the kind of, like, um, moral relativism that cuts across all walks of life, right, that Captain America would find very – like, when he – it's kind of uncomfortable when he says, like, there's only one god and he doesn't dress like that and he freaking jumps out of a plane. You know, like, it's – he's a fanatic, but but he also, like, believes in a very very outdated idea, like – it's not that it's it's not that it's nostalgia. It's that like the the America is it that that he's this Superman stories have a problem because Superman is could become the government. Superman could very easily like be like I'm in charge. I'm in the just I run the Justice League. I'm going to do everything. And one of the things that was interesting about Captain America here is that Captain America doesn't seem to really buy into the American state or the American government in a meaningful way in this movie. Um, he has his own beliefs that he follows, his own ideas of generosity and selflessness that he believes in. He believes in protecting innocent people, and he believes in, in the kind of like training that he's gotten. But he never like holds up an American flag or like says you should believe in your country, right? Like he never he's says. He's not a very good like soldier. He doesn't really take orders unquestioningly either. Uh, I guess, I mean, well, he, actually, it, yeah. he actually refers to the uniform, right? It's like, the, we've got uh, Colson designs the new uniform, and he says, I don't think the stars and stripes are really what we need anymore. Yeah, like, he's a little embarrassed anymore. about it. Like, yeah, he almost doesn't exactly. want to go in public dressed in that, because he knows that he'll be laughed at. 
Right, 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 right. Which I think all points to this idea of like authority and and uh, and also this idea of like the Avengers resisting authority. Each of them have some sort of quarrel with this idea that they're supposed to take on the responsibilities of of protecting everybody. You know, Tony Stark because he has all this self interest and he's like kind of the playboy and kind of doesn't like to be bossed around. And Thor because Thor kind of likes it when people like have problems with each other right like he doesn't want loki to like get in the way of them fighting wars and killing each other that was kind of an interesting like uh, oh, he's he's wonderfully perverse in this movie yeah like, yeah like yeah. the first time he gets to fight the hulk like he's really excited to punch yeah. the hulk <laughs> thor is weird man thor is a weird dude i really love the scene where he's catapulted down inside the hulk cage out of the unlikely aircraft carrier flying machine and like you know he can get out of the thing and you know at the very worst he could just fly inside of the thing like but um but there's this wonderful moment where he's like holding his hammer and he's like tumbling around inside of it and he's just like swinging his hammer at the air right <laughs> he's, he's like i'm gonna bash it and he just can't find the wall um and it just sort of shows like the kind of plot elements that can actually frustrate a character like that don't give him like 30 mobsters to get through like give it give him a situation where he doesn't know which way is up but no he's definitely a perverse and childlike person and it was pretty awesome so let's let's talk a little about about loki so one thing i was worried about watching the trailer was that they wouldn't really play to loki's strengths loki being the trickster god the god of mischief and illusion because you know everything we see of loki in the trailer is of him commanding armies to blast new york into flinders and and yet they did a really good job with that, portraying Loki as a master manipulator, as an illusionist. I mean, he doesn't have a lot of powers independent of the staff, apparently. And I never saw the Thor movie. So was he stripped of some powers or something? I'm not I'm not sure. He was stripped of his place and authority in Asgard, I think. But I think Loki is I think other than the Asgardians generally being like super durable and and, and like you know, Superman quality generic fighters. I don't think Loki had anything special in that movie. Although I okay. might be something. But yeah. So yeah, I mean he just he just has the power to, you know, remake himself or, you know, shift his appearance using illusion and such is just sturdy. Okay. So they did a good job with him not only as capable of illusion, but also as being a master manipulator, someone who, you know, makes plots within plots, wheels within wheels, which is tough to do in any movie. And I was worried they weren't going to do in this movie. They were just going to have Loki be the big guy you have to punch a lot. Right, and he's a pretty nondescript big guy to punch a lot because he's not big. Like, he's a skinny dude with, like, like weaselly features. I mean, but, you know, he's tall. It's also he gives hard to take seriously with the horns. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. Like, Hellboy cut those off for a reason. <laughs> I remember when I saw Legend, how like the demon in Legend has like those giant horns, and it's like really uncomfortable and difficult to watch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we talked about yeah, was... we talked about uh, the Superman movies and Superman character, and we talked about authority. So now that we're talking about Loki, we clearly must call out the fact that he, uh, you know, asks for the people to kneel before him as a certain General Zod once did <laughs> in Superman Two. Yeah. Is there anything to, to read into that? No, well, I mean, that, I mean, clearly Joss Whedon knows Neil before Zod. Yeah, but it's, I mean, that that scene was also the scene of of the movie Godwinning itself. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's also one of the in, first in scenes in Germany, Delta. right? Yeah, if you've ever yeah, seen oh, Delta. yeah, yeah, in Germany, and the the one guy standing up again. Uh, sorry, Pete, you go ahead. 
Oh, no, just that that's also one of the first scenes in Delta Force where the old Jewish man stands up and is like, I'm not going to like take when I'm not going to take this from you or, you know, like when when are people like you going to stop doing this to the world? And, and there's this moment where you see the guy's Holocaust tattoo as the hijackers are taking over the plane and, and everyone is cowering and they're asking for the Jewish people to be brought forward so they can presumably be shot. And like the guy's like, who's going to save us? And it cuts to like Chuck Norris on an ATV. <laughs> like, just, like, <laughs> yeah. There's like talk a, about that. I was genuinely moved by that scene yeah it was like cool. this is powerful stuff this is great well and it it speaks that i i read i heard another podcast this week that was that was reviewing this movie and says it sort of speaks that very very arch comic book comic book language right that <laughs> captain america in fact, literally speaks the arch comic book language there right well, doesn't yeah. he come in and say like the last time i was here there was a guy right, something like that there was a guy right. standing up in front of there is standing up we should all be equal like we are in america um <laughs> that you know and this is something that i mean this is something that sort of seems to make joss whedon a very good director for for this stuff because from i mean from buffy to uh all the way to Dollhouse, right? Like he's not afraid to get, oh, to get philosophical. You know what I mean? Almost like a geek Aaron Sorkin, almost in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of kind of uh, putting the the big issues right into the into the script. And that I mean, that also seems to be the the register that that this kind of comic book operates in, right? So let me let me weigh in on the. On the Joss Whedon uh, aspect, because I think I'm I'm the one member of the panel who's the least impressed with uh, with Joss Whedon. But I I really liked this movie, and I I've been I've been grappling as to why. And I think I think what did it for me is that Whedon's dialogue has always struck me as a little bit melodramatic and tin-eared. But this is really the sort of genre where it works, namely superheroes, people who are larger than life people who are you know barely restrained invulnerable psychopaths or norse gods or narcissistic billionaire geniuses these are the kind of larger than life characters in whom for me in whose mouths joss whedon's dialogue works not you know teenagers and it's also it's kind of a circle right it's kind of a circular thing because you get the you get the sense that like joss whedon whatever you can say about him he's a real fan of of this kind of entertainment and you get the sense that his 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 own sensibility was sort of formed by it uh you know back in the day well yeah one of the things that i thought he did incredibly well with this was actually the whole thing feels like a comic book like the pacing is very similar. The way that, like, in the forty-minute fight scene at the end, the each like almost every pair of characters gets like one shot. Where like you know you get to see these two working together, and then you get to see another two working together, and that's very much like a team comic book would do it. Especially like the first couple of issues um, after they you know have their mistaken fight, which we also got with Iron Man and Thor. I mean, it just it really just hits all of the good comic book tropes. And the thing that, that he did particularly well was, you know, in a, in a regular issue of a comic book, you're, you're getting maybe 50 lines of dialogue. You don't get a lot of time to get to know the characters, so they have to make you care about them very quickly. Um, Agent Coulson's death was really sad. And the grand total of what we knew about him was that he was dating a cellist who moved to Portland and that he collects Captain America cards. 
But like those two things done in maybe 45 seconds of screen time make you genuinely care about this character that, you know, is otherwise you know nothing about. And that was just incredibly well done. I mean, one of the things that, go ahead, John. Well, uh, to tying in on that, he also did a very good job granting depth and, you know, talent, sort of an, an equal limelight to uh, Scarlett Johansson as the Black Widow and Jeremy Renner as Hawkeye, because these are two characters who haven't really had time to shine on their own. They haven't had their own franchise picks leading up to this the way everyone else has. And yet, uh, in Johansson's case, we get a very a very clear sense of what Black Widow's strengths are. Like not that just not that not just that she's a a good fighter and you know looks good in a leather cat suit, but that she has genuine skills in namely sort of reverse interrogations, I guess you'd call it. Uh, and Hawkeye in particular, we get uh, we get a sense of his his competency and his and his backstory as well. That frankly, I I would not have been impressed by prior to the movie. Iron Man is plausible as a product of technology. If you saw that in, in the newspaper, right, obviously he'd be in the cover of Time, he'd be a huge celebrity, but it doesn't really shake your view of how the world works. It's just, wow, the gadgets they make nowadays are incredible. Uh, but then if you think about the other people on that team, like Captain America's like, wow, we can freeze people and bring them back years later. Think about what that means for, for the human lifespan. Uh, and then you get into Thor, and that just sort of shakes your whole view of theology, right? Does that, if Thor is real and Loki is real, does that mean all of Christianity is wrong? Does that mean all world religions besides Norse mythology is wrong? And then in this movie, the thing that really gets uh, downplayed because the the focus is so much of the Avengers, we are not alone in the universe, guys. There are uh, aliens, there are whole alien civilizations out there uh, that are hostile and aim to kill us all. And that's big, you know that that that's the fact that there are aliens tearing apart New York is potentially larger news in the world of this movie than the fact that there are superheroes. Yeah, it's pretty intense. And and if you look at the way that it's dealt with inside of the Marvel universe, they make a couple of interesting choices. The first is that the Marvel universe is theistic. Right, like there's a character called the One Above All, who represents kind of like a vague ecumenical idea of the Abrahamic God, who exists like above the living tribunal, right? And and is uh, I think Watu the Watcher says that he uh, his only weapon is love at one point, right? And so like Marvel believes, you know, the, in the Marvel you know mythos, there is like a sort of divinity that is above this sort of intermediate level of superheroes. So they certainly want to think that it doesn't disrupt it too much, but certainly for regular people it would. But also what it makes me think of is. People People like, um, I almost said Rick Ross, but it's clearly not Rick Ross. <laughs> um, oh, man. Now I can't even remember. Now I want to say it's Jim Jones, but it's not Jim Jones either because he's another rapper. Rick, Rick, um, Rick Jones. Who is the name of – what? Rick, Rick James. Jones. Rick, Rick, Rick Jones. Rick, Rick Jones. Is that who we're thinking about? I don't know who you're thinking about. I'm thinking about the guy who is the teenager that the Hulk saves. Rick Jones. Who, Rick, that's his name. Yes, it's, it's Rick Jones. That is his okay. name. Okay, so I was okay. So confusing Rick Ross and Jim Jones in that situation was not unreasonable. Um, so Rick Jones. So a lot of characters like Rick Jones. You can also also think of it as sort of like Jimmy Olsen syndrome, right? Like these characters who are normal kind of become really aggressively normal in the Marvel universe. Like it seems like regular human beings either become like like really self-identified with like wearing like 
you know, sweaters and jeans and going about their regular business, um, you know, or they join shadowy conspiracies to like, like build quantum mechanic machines that take over the universe or whatnot, you know, like, like, um, it seems like within Marvel, the existence of superheroes makes normal people want to be more normal. I mean, except for the ones that end up being in the stories, right? And want to be like the superheroes and get themselves in trouble. Um, but the people at large seem to be, like, really adverse to changing their lifestyles or else they would, right? Like, um, I mean, I guess they're, they're xenophobic, like the X-Men. They go after the X-Men. But, I mean, I don't know. What about you guys? What, what would it be like for you if all of a sudden you found out that superheroes were real? It's what do you think about this world? It's kind of tough to change your lifestyle in any way that really stands out in a world where there are people who can set themselves on fire or stretch themselves hundreds of yards at a time or regenerate from bullet wounds or things like that. I mean, if, if, you, live, if you live in a world where... A guy who can set himself on fire can fly in at a at a club premiere and show up and be like, "Hey, ladies, I'm Johnny Storm. W- what are you gonna do? Like, buy a Lamborghini? Like, what what's your like what's your in there? What's your what's your what's your power move? What's your alpha game there? It, when when there are people who can fly." I mean, although when you think about it, there are machines on Earth that are capable of doing many of the things that these superheroes do, like you know, move very fast. Or like exert a lot of force, right? Like it's not it totally alien to our understanding of things to have, say, a machine that can generate a large surge of electricity, right? Like at will and and shock things, you know, like uh, or yes, blow but, up stuff from miles away. Yes, well, but this that, actually- that machine can't buy you a drink, Fenzel. <laughs> so we're talking about like how what happens to your sexual identity when Captain America exists or when Johnny Storm exists? Like how can you ever impress anybody ever again? Well, but this is this is sort of what the world went through with the advent of guns, right? Like you used to be, you, you know, if you wanted to be more powerful, you could get better at fighting. And then once people had guns, there's really a limit to how good you can be. Um, and you know, like the whole sort of aristocracy had to change the way it thought about itself. Um, is that the quote, which is like, God made man, but Sam Colt made them equal? Yeah, the- exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know. Right, right, right. You know, the, a world with guns is one in which the swordsman does not do well uh, in the next Avengers movie, as Matt would hope. Well, yeah, right, in, into the Valley of Death. Uh, wrote, uh, uh, oh, how many were there in the Charge of the Light? Um, 200, 400? There were six. There was the green guy, the battle-suited guy, the guy with- <laughs> But when the Earth is constantly coming under intergalactic threat, that also makes saving for retirement quite difficult, as well as raising a family yeah. or, like, having any sort of stability. Being breadwinner is very hard when, like, your town could get destroyed at any moment, right? Like, how do you employ people? How do you, like, invest and create, like, yeah. the businesses of tomorrow? You know what? If you guys- anybody else on the podcast? Oh, sorry, Josh, go. No, finish your sentence. Has anybody else in the podcast seen the, the third Transformers movie, Dark of the Moon? Uh, I can't, it, but I, I hope it's just the story of Convoy. It's, it's interesting. <laughs> that would be amazing. Yeah, but it's interesting that it's actually very close to the plot of the Avengers in the third act, that the city of Chicago 
uh, becomes taken over by Decepticons who use a device to open up a portal to Cybertron uh, to try to like bring Cybertron to Earth. A bunch of Decepticons rush through the uh, the portal, and then it becomes a fight to both like you know contain the the threat within Chicago and also close the portal before they can they can take over the Earth. But what I think is interesting about that in terms of the authority conversation we had earlier is that as in all the Transformers movie, the U.S. Army has a major role to play in winning that battle. That obviously the the uh, the Autobots are fighting the the robots, but like without the Army guys, they would not be able to win. And without this sort of tactical forces using special weaponry, whereas that in the Avengers universe, uh, even though that the Avengers are sort of a government team, most people who sort of watch this on TV wouldn't get that. To them, it just looks like. New York was in danger, and the government wasn't there. Who was there was these superheroes, these the these only, this ragtag guys. Yeah. There, the, the, there are representatives of the military there, but it's it's uh, it's you don't national, really see them. It's though. like Army National Guard, right? Like uh, reference the National Guard not showing up or not being too. Yeah, popular. they were an hour away. Yeah, but they, but, but then you see you see like <laughs> some kind of like armored uh, jeeps or something like that rolling in with a, you know, a big gun mounted on the back, right? There, there are shots of that in addition to the shots of like first, first responders or, you know, dollhouses, Enver Gajokaj or however you say his name as a, you know, square jawed, uh, NYPD officer, like you do, they, they do kind of roll, roll up at a, at a certain point, but they're, they're so ineffectual, uh, you know, compared, compared with this threat, almost as though, almost as though they are the army of, of World War II, right? Like, uh, you know, they're sort of monolithic, they're inflexible, uh, they're, you know, um, like mechanized, you know, mechanized, ill-suited to urban combat and to, uh, you know, extraterrestrial urban combat in particular. I would also say that in terms of the U.S. government not being there, the branding of Captain America, I think, goes a long way toward alleviating that problem. (laughs) Um, For the the whole point about, like, what is it like to live in this world? Um, If any of you ever get a chance, uh, Kurt Busiek has a comic series called Astro City. Which is um, which is just that. It's basically a, a city in which there are hundreds of superheroes and supervillains, and it's mostly from the perspective of average people and about what it's like. And it's it wins all kinds of awards. It's really really well done. I hope it's better than City of Heroes, which I've been playing recently. And I don't want to bash it too much, but that that game gets really depressing because like you're walking through the streets and there's just dozens and dozens of people just like to fight and punch and kick and you get the sense that like the members of various gangs and various like cults and various like you know horrible mutant populations that are nothing but belligerent like far outnumber the regular people such that it's like why do i even bother like all the people who live here are horrible psychopaths why am i punching them all day like this just doesn't seem to serve any purpose um and it gets kind of despairing so i hope that it deals with it with a bit more complexity than that because that's the kind of thing is like where did tomorrow's henchmen come from like where are you hiring these henchmen from in these worlds forget the henchmen in 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 city of heroes uh, who does the dry cleaning uh there's taylor there's a tailor chain called icon where you can get your costumes cleaned no you can't have changed Uh, to answer to answer your earlier question where you were hinting about you know about what do you do for a living in a world where you know manhattan can get destroyed every other month uh, I, I would imagine more industries arise in in the wake of a, a more heavily superheroic population. I'm reminded of, and I'm Googling them now, 
the uh, yes, the the com- the company called Damage Control in Marvel Comics, who were, was an insurance and construction firm. Actually, no, they were a construction company uh, who existed to I know who existed to help rebuild and insure. Uh, and ensure, you know, buildings and institutions that were destroyed by superheroic battles. And every now and then they run afoul of, like, you know, or they, they, they make a hard time for Spider-Man after, you know, some fight with the Rhino levels of building. And they're like, oh, you know, Spider-Man, we're, we're suing you or something like that. So they, uh, so yeah, I mean, that's an example of an industry arising in the wake of, you know, superheroic carnage, just as, you know, new industries have arisen in the wake of the credit crisis, for instance. It's true. Uh, you can I would argue that really anyone in the construction trades unions is going to do well. <laughs> yeah, and also if you make like sandwiches that explode and like superheroes can eat them and get an ex- experience that blows up in their mouth, that would be pretty awesome. So guys... Oh, you mean like... Yeah. You mean like some some kind of cu- uh, cuisine experience that normal humans can't enjoy, but like the Hulk could eat this exploding sandwich and he'd be like, "Oh, I look like sandwich." <laughs> exactly. That's exactly. Well, he, what he actually talked about that in the movie, right? He was going to eat like you know an authentic Philly cheese tesseract or whatever. Like, do you remember that part? No. Yeah. They, uh, oh, wait, he was going to put the tesseract. He's like, "You want me to swallow it?" Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which would have been a fantastically different ending to the film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, given given the theme of uh, that we've kind of been dancing around of responsible use of power, um, and of uh, you know, sort of uh, what sort of the the kind of internal the kind of internal intrapersonal politics of power and how you sort of negotiate your own neuroses and power and things like this. What is a uh, what is a, a responsible use of the Marvel Studios? power uh to make sequels right uh are we in a kind of arms race of uh of you know destruction and spectacle in this movie like where do we possibly go for uh iron man 3 thor 2 um what are some of captain the other? america 2 captain america 2 uh hulk yeah. hulk 2b or well, I mean, I don't, I don't quite know how to. Or, um, or just more specifically, now that we've seen all these superheroes Avengers together Avengers. in one giant story, do we want to go back to seeing a Hulk solo movie? Is that going to seem like fun now that we've seen them all on the screen at the same time? If they do it like they did the Hulk in this one, yes, I will go watch two hours of that. <laughs> that was pretty awesome. Um, no, I think. Well, I think one of the things that Whedon did really well was he kept their personal stories going, right? Like the Iron Man Pepper Potts relationship, like was moved forward, and you can see that they, you could see some seeds of some interesting character development there. Um, and that's one thing these movies are doing better than sort of any of the superheroes of the past is really if my, if like getting down to the character far. development. You mean cut off shorts? Then I agree. There was a lot of character. <laughs> development it wasn't scenes. that much character development. It ended well above the knee. <laughs> 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 um, and also kudos to her because those she, her legs were very strong. Um, they clearly she clearly does a lot of Pilates or whatnot. I mean, well, they haven't done the most important Iron Man storyline yet, right? Like, have they addressed it? Uh, maybe I, I want to make sure I'm not misremembering Iron Man too. But of course, I'm referring to Tony Stark's alcoholism. Have they really gotten into that? The genie um, in the bottle thing. Yeah, yeah. They could always the do that. Yeah, they have. They haven't really. In fact, they haven't at all. 
Yeah, yeah. So the Iron Man three could be like, you know, he becomes an alcoholic. Although it seems a little bit abrupt from where he is now in his character arc. But that was like that's like the story arc that kind of makes Iron Man interesting as a comic book character, right? Like, because prior to that, he's just a dude in a robot suit, and it's like, oh, he has this vulnerability because he's you know an alcoholic, and it's kind of a daring thing for them to do. I always expected that to be one of the thrusts of the first movie, and was surprised when it wasn't. Um, I, I mean, I guess I they could do like the problem was. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I think they're avoiding it because, like, the thing that made the, the Iron Man movies so much fun was that he was having fun, right? After all the angsty superheroes we've seen, like, Iron Man, was he was, like, blowing shit up and had a great time. Um, and I think you also saw that with, like, Thor in this movie, even the Hulk in this movie, you know, Hulk, go smash, and he just grins really big, like... They're doing something different with these that, that I'm really enjoying, and but judging by the box office, I'm not alone in that. So I think the alcoholism would actually, like, do we want to see Robert Downey Jr. be like, you know, at AA? I don't I think we not. do. I think yeah. we want to see him drink a martini and blow stuff up. <laughs> I think as Ryan, another thing we we mentioned at OTI Movie Night that Ryan said was, uh, "Fun is the new serious." So, uh, <laughs> so expect like the so we will have the Dark Knight Rises where Batman will struggle with his demons and all this other nonsense, and and the Marvel movies they'll be a little bit more lighthearted. Maybe they'll get married. Maybe Tony Stark and Pepper Potts will have a baby robot. They can have a little baby <laughs> Iron Man suit and he can fly around. Speaking um, of serious, did you ever do Iron Toddler? Because Iron Toddler would be fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of serious and the Dark Knight Rises. Um, is DC now hankering? DC and I guess Warner Brothers are they now hankering to get a Justice League sort of thing going to try to replicate uh, Marvel's uh, Marvel success? And I'm sure it's I mean, a to have blown up in their face. It's blown up in their face a bunch of times. They've they've tried to do it. Uh, I think they wanted to recast everybody with younger, hotter actors, and it just got people really confused like, and angry. It's like you can't get Christian like, Bale in there, right? I mean, can you imagine you know, Christian that, Bale that, that and Ryan sort of Reynolds in a movie together? That's just ridiculous. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. <laughs> you're like, Batman, you're meant- so crazy. <laughs> like, well, why are you talking to me? Can you imagine Christian Bale's Batman dealing with the typical Justice League plots? Like, oh, Batman, here we are on, you know, dealing with Darkseed. Darkseed. I can't, st- I can't stand monsters like him preying on the weak galaxies of the universe with the what the hell am i doing here what does this have to do with my what does this have to do with my dead parents <laughs> just quick christian bale get in your bad submarine let's go into the ancient caves like, well i, I just, spin around in a circle really fast and make a tornado i just, I just <laughs> want to make a point that i'm not the, the only podcaster who does harvey firestein <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here's the thing, Mark, is that the DC is in a tricky situation because, on one hand, their movies have been veering in this direction of being more, much more grim and serious than the Marvel movies. But on the other hand, the Justice League is very, very silly. <laughs> and so, like, they, I mean, they come live on, on a satellite. What? They live on a satellite. <laughs> yeah, you think the aircraft carrier that flies is ridiculous? Hold on, hold yeah. on. Is the Justice League inherently silly, or just like the cartoon version that we all remember growing up? You have Aquaman, right? <laughs> and Wonder Woman, uh, who is like, they have all sorts of problems making Wonder Woman movies. Like, they don't know what they're supposed Just to do. They don't know what they're Wonder Woman writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should point out that they, they failed miserably to make a Wonder Woman uh, TV series very recently. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. But with David well, Kelly for some reason. Their movies have been popular, right? The Batman movies are great, but no one likes Green Lantern, no one likes Superman. Um, yeah. 
you know, so it'd be like, why would Christopher Nolan or anyone involved with Batman agree to team up with any of those other people? Yeah, like Christopher Nolan and Brian Singer are going to get together and have like the world's most awkward Starbucks, where they're just like, "So, how are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Do you like that?" Well, Josh Whedon is busy, so they're going to like they're going to get like Roman Polanski to do the Justice League films. <laughs> I hope it's just this nonstop associative montage that only makes a small amount of sense and just like shows all sorts of weird stuff from history and like psychedelia, and it's just like totally like. They totally let go. I mean, they have to now, right? I mean, it's the most, highest grossing movie of, of you know, it, it might, not of all time, but the highest, biggest opening weekend in history. There's got to be a meeting where a bunch of executives are hemming and hawing over doing a Justice League movie, right? Like, it has to happen. This was a very this is a very long game to get to this point to begin with. So there was the Iron Man movie, and then there were, what, five or six years of movies setting up the individual characters all of which had to succeed. Well, they didn't have to succeed. I mean, if Thor had tanked it a little, I think they still would have thrown Thor in. But all of which succeeded on their own to bring us to the Avengers. And then the Avengers movie still had to be good, which was by no means a, a fait accompli. So DC is, you know, they're working on the Superman reboot with, with Man of Steel. They have Green Lantern. They may do, as I say, they may do Wonder Woman someday. And Aquaman still still twists in the wind or floats on the the current or however you wanna what, whatever metaphor works. So if DC wants to replicate the Marvel model, they need to do all that. If not, they need to find a way to invest people in Aquaman, Wonder Woman, uh, Zatanna, the Martian Manhunter, uh, the Green Arrow, the the Flash. And all of those people, none of whom have the same cachet before releasing the Justice League movie. I'm wondering, is CGI at the point now where you could do a Flash movie that didn't just look stupid? That's not just like videos sped up a lot? Are we <laughs> there sure we're going to find out very soon. Yeah, we, we may yeah. find out. Well, with Pete talking about an associative montage that makes very little sense, uh, before we devolve into that ourselves, I think it's time to uh, call, uh, call off this double issue of the Overthinking It podcast. Uh, so thank you to the podcasters, especially, well, especially all of you, but especially those of you who are not with us very often. It's been great to have uh, this super large uh, annual, podcast annual, um, to, uh, you know, commemorate the 201st regular episode of the Overthinking It podcast. Uh, we'll be back next week. Until then, you can visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. You know what I love? The Overseer podcast was doing the post credit scene even before it was cool.